Just a couple of uh, housekeeping items before reading scripture this day. Uh, First of all, as you heard a little bit earlier, uh, we are looking forward to our Love Life Celebrate Sunday next Sunday. It's the day when we will be um, offering our commitments to the Lord during our Sunday morning worship celebration. We do this at an unusual time for most churches, largely because we have a seasonal congregation that worships with us during the winter. Most churches do a fall pledge campaign, but we wait until February because it's an opportunity for us to address our larger congregation, uh, those of our good friends who are here uh, from being up north, and especially those who are uh, worshiping with us continuously online. And we are grateful. One of the the blessings, if you can ever find a blessing during COVID, is that it has allowed our congregation to grow uh, as we have become more of an online presence to many people throughout our country. And we're grateful for that entire family and we want to take the opportunity we can to always address them and include them in our life as we seek to serve all facets of our congregation. And so we invite you all to participate in our uh, generosity campaign this year as we rejoice in God's call for us to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. Your contributions will help us toward that end and allow us to improve all of the things that we seek to do here in our life at Church of the Palms. Inflation is affecting all of us, and of course, Church of the Palms is no exception. 2023 will simply just cost a lot more for us to do ministry than in 2022, and we would be grateful if you would consider this in your annual giving decisions. So next week, we get to offer these pledges to God for all that God has given us. We invite you to take the pledge card that is in your bulletin with you home and Allow that to be a prompt for your prayers as you wonder about how God is calling you to support Church of the Palms. Uh, If by chance there's an extra pledge card sort of in your family, uh, don't leave it on the pew, put it in the pledge, in the the pew rack, uh, in in your pew there so that uh, I can make friends with our pew people. Secondly, I want to call your attention to two weeks from now when we welcome Dr. Amy Jo Levine to uh, Sarasota. Dr. Levine is a Jewish New Testament professor and scholar, and we are co-sponsoring her time here with our dear friends at Temple Sinai. On Friday, February the 24th, that's a week from this coming Friday, we are invited to Temple Sinai Uh, so that we can enjoy their time with them in a variety of ways. First, there's a welcome reception at 5 p.m., and then there is a Shabbat service at 6 p.m., and then that is followed by Dr. Levine's presentation at 7 p.m. You are invited to any or all of those events during Friday night, but we hope that you'll join us as we hear from Dr. Levine uh, in her presentation talk about how do we live our lives together as Jews and Christians and share in the great traditions that we hold together. Then she will be here Saturday afternoon addressing the same topic at 3 p.m. here in the sanctuary, and so we hope that you'll come and join us for that as well, all for the opportunity of being shoulder to shoulder with our friends at Temple Sinai and to, in the face of a world that seems to grow further and further apart, to uh, show a different example of what it means for us to come closer and closer together. So 
We hope to see you uh, at both of those events on Friday and Saturday, a week from this next weekend. Okay. Let's pray. We bless you, O oh God, for your word. And we pray that these words to come will point to the word that has been read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ. Amen. And I haven't read the scripture yet, so let me just do that. <laughs> so Jesus speaks and says, you have heard that it was said, we, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Oh, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The story is told of the medieval knight who returned to his castle after a long journey. He was battered and bloody, his armor was dented, his horse limping, and he was barely himself able to keep in the saddle. The lord of the castle ran out to meet him and inquired with a sense of urgency, what, what hath befallen thee, sir knight? Straightening up as best as he could, the knight replied, Sire, I have been laboring in thy service, doing battle with thy enemies to the east. Once the lord looks worried and perplexed, said he, But, sir knight, I have no enemies to the east. Oh my, answered the knight, I think that thou dost now. Legion, I suppose, are the stories that could be told in this place, this gathering of normal human beings, of how we have come about to have our enemies. Now, I think there's something that happens inside each of us when someone like me tells someone like you that you have enemies. Good Christians get pretty defensive when the preacher implies that they might be holding in their heart somewhere a list of enemies. Enemies sound so harsh. I don't have enemies, we say, not really. I mean, I'm not that bad. I do have some people I'd rather not spend time with. I, I, I do have some people with whom I'd like to keep a distance. I do have people I avoid. I do have people that I just stop talking to. I do have people who are stupid enough to vote for the other side. I do have people who have wounded me and that I'm having trouble forgiving. I don't have enemies. I have people I hope I never see again, but I don't have enemies. I don't suspect Jesus would spend much time with the semantics of all this. For him, it seemed that the point was that we all have stories about how one relationship or another or many have been harmed, damaged, severed over time. 
it seems, the human condition, so much so that when the Bible starts to tell the story of God and God's people, you're barely five pages into the story when two brothers have a falling out, Cain and Abel, and Cain is so angry, so hurt, so wounded that he finds his own way of ridding himself of his brother. Fratricide right there, five pages into the story, as if to say, this is a part of who we are. We have people we want out of our lives one way or another. Something it seems that Jesus speaks to when he says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the interesting thing is that the Bible, and specifically the Old Testament, never says that we are actually to hate our enemy. Those words never literally come out of God's mouth, but it is what the people of God have interpreted God to have said. When, when God tells them to distinguish themselves and to live righteously and, and, to, you know, and to be a counter to those who believe in other gods and to keep God's commandments and to make yourself distinct, over time this has been interpreted to mean those other people are different, they follow other gods, therefore they are the enemies of God, therefore they are our enemies, and in order to honor God we must dishonor them, and in dishonoring them, we must hate them. Therefore, to show our love for God, we must hate God's supposed enemies. Now, buried underneath all this is something else about the human condition and our human religions that lies deeper than even our enemy list and may be at least in part the cause of our enemies list because when we read the Bible, we hear God say over and over again to be righteous live righteously do the right thing think the right thoughts hold the right opinion in other words just be right nike says just do it and we say just be right and we assume that biblical righteousness is a matter of being right and when we have to be right it means that there's a whole bunch of people who are wrong and it's not a great distance between people being wrong to people being our enemy. You remember the story of the two brothers who joined the family business of running a hardware store, and when their father died, they now shared in its ownership. The brothers were close, best of friends, trusted each other implicitly, until the day when one of them had placed a $20 bill on the cash register while walking a customer to the door. And when he returned, the $20 bill was gone. He asked his brother if he had you know, put the $20 bill into the cash register. No, the brother said, I didn't see it. Are, are you sure, said the brother? Uh, no, I never saw it, but <laughs> it was right there in the register. Are, are you sure you didn't do something with it? This question brought a ring of accusation, and before the two knew it, there was a breach, and into the breach fell suspicion, and with suspicion came anger, and the breach grew, and all of a sudden, new accusations were lobbed back and forth. The fraternal partners stopped speaking to each other. The partnership dissolved. The store was split in half with a wall. The two stores were formed, and a cold war ensued. Twenty years passed until one day a well-dressed stranger pulled up in a car in front of one of the stores. He walked into the store and happened upon the brother who had placed that $20 bill on the register. Excuse me, he said, but about 20 years ago, I was in this store. It was a bad time in my life. I was out of luck and out of money, and when nobody was looking, I noticed a $20 bill on the register and took it. Always bothered me, this compulsive act of poor behavior, and while I'm sure it made no difference to you, 
It did to me. I'm here to pay my debt. The brother grew pale and began to shake. Would you come with me and tell your story to my brother so I can ask forgiveness and apologize for wasting the last 20 years of our lives? When you think you're right, and when you think you have to be right, and when that means that others are wrong, it doesn't take much to come up with all sorts of reasons to suspect they're wrong. And as C.S. Lewis was correct when he said, suspicion often creates what it suspects, well then you're on the fast track to an enemy, which means anger and anxiety and hurt and depression soon to follow. Malachi McCourt, brother to Frank McCourt, the author of the Pulitzer Prize winning memoir, Angela's Ashes, about the McCourt brothers and their desperate childhood of poverty and abuse, later in life reflected on all the enemies of his childhood, his drunken father, an unsympathetic church, a corrupt government, this list of resentments of the people who had failed him. And he said this, he said, if you let those resentments live rent-free in your head, you'll become a lunatic. Resentment is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. I was in a Bible study several years ago and we were studying this passage and after we had looked at the passage from about every angle except for straight on, the teacher said, okay, write down the name of an enemy. Of course, none of us wanted to write down any name because we didn't have any real enemies. Go ahead, he said, write down a name. Reluctantly, we did. Okay, said the teacher, now next week come back and tell us what you did about it. Sheesh. So staring there, staring me in the face was the name of someone who kind of double-crossed me years before, a pastor no less. And I harbored a good dose of resentment because, you know, I was right. <laughs> Any court in the land would have rendered the verdict in my favor. I was right and he was wrong in a gulf form that grew the size of the Grand Canyon and I drank the poison one sip at a time put the name on my desk and avoided it for a few days and then finally because I couldn't say the dog ate my homework I picked up the phone and called his number hoping beyond hope he wouldn't pick up he did Ugh. I told him that somehow his name popped into my brain and I thought I would call and see how he was doing silence and then he said I'm doing all right well, how about your family, I asked, and the ice started to break. And I heard about his family and his church, and I, he heard about my family and my church, and then after about 20 minutes or so of catching up, we both said it was good to catch up. And then it was kind of time to hang up. And before we hung up, though, my enemy said to me, hey, Steve, thanks for calling. I know you didn't have to do that. Since then, it's been texts and emails, a like or two on Facebook, we're not bosom buddies, but the Grand Canyon is more like Sarasota Bay, edges close enough which a bridge upon which a bridge has been built. I'm a little embarrassed to tell you that story because I'm a preacher, I'm a pastor, I'm a student of Jesus' teaching. And I looked at that text from all sorts of angles except for straight on. 
And it took a brother in Christ to whack me alongside the head with the words of Jesus and then to say, now what are you going to do about it? Some years after Robert E. Lee's surrender of his troops to General Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox, the old and defeated general reflected on what it took for him to decide to lay down his arms. Said Lee, I surrendered as much to Lincoln's goodness as to Grant's armies. Which makes me wonder if what Jesus is up to when he implores us to love our enemies is to be about a redefinition of what it means to be good. For how easy it is for us in our pursuit to be good, to be righteous, to be right. How easy it is for us to turn a good thing into a bad thing. If I'm right, then that must mean you're wrong, and wrongness brings suspicion, and suspicion creates what it suspects, and wrongness means enemies, and down goes the poison. But that's not what goodness is. There's an old principle etched into the Presbyterian Constitution that dates back before the Revolution, coined, most believed, by a signer of the Declaration of Independence, John Witherspoon, the only pastor to sign the Declaration of Independence, and the principle is this, truth is an order to goodness, which means goodness must always supersede truth. If right leads to wrong, then it isn't right. If, if right leads to anger and separation and hate and enemies, then it was never right to begin with. Goodness is about loving God and loving neighbor, and it begins with the fact that God loved us not because we were right, but because we are God's children. So I think to the time when I was in college, a junior in college, and a few of my friends and I had befriended the janitor who worked in our dormitory. His name was Chuck, and Chuck was a great guy, good Southern Baptist an older guy around retirement age. And we included Chuck in our little circle and he joined us when we would go out for dinner and to the ball games and so on and so forth. He was one of us, kind of like a father figure. We carried on this friendship with Chuck for a couple of years all the way up until graduation. And it was right before graduation that I did something so stupid and so insensitive. And the result of it was that I let Chuck down hugely. And not only did I let him down, I let down his grandson. And boy, you never let a grandfather's grandson down. And you know, I was 22, and I was immature, and I was insensitive. But for Chuck, this was huge. So the day before graduation, I bumped into Chuck, and he just let me have it up one side and down the other, blasted me, and I deserved it. He laid into me, and at the end of it all, he said that as far as he was concerned, he had nothing more to do with me, and he walked away. So the next day, I graduate. It's the end of college. It's the end of the chapter, and so it seemed the end of Chuck. So I'm up in my room after graduation, packing up my last things, and a knock comes to the door, and I open the door, and it's Chuck. And he's got these big tears in his eyes, and he's got his hands wrapped around this little box wrapped with a bow that says, Happy Graduation. And he says to me with a cracked voice, I couldn't let what I said to you yesterday, I couldn't let that be the last word. I just want you to know I forgive you, and I love you like a son, 
and can we still be friends? And we were for the rest of Chuck's days. The old prophet says that what the Lord requires is for us to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with God. And maybe those are the three ingredients of righteousness. Justice, tempered by kindness, saturated with humility, like the prayer of the little girl, Lord, make the bad people good and make the good people nice.